Oh, now, before I get started, I want to say thank you guys so much for just caring for our family this week and praying for Liam. Uh, quick update, he's back there, and he, it's like nothing ever happened. He feels fine. But uh, we, we were in the hospital for most of this week with him with an uh, infection in the knee. Fortunately, the doctors moved quickly and Cam moved quickly, and and no permanent damage. I uh, was able to come home Friday evening and is, is doing well. Can't stop him from running around right now. So thank you so much for your prayers. All right, so I have this up here for a reason. I love fall. Okay, fall is by far my favorite season. Uh, one, because the temperatures go down, but also because Thanksgiving is like right around the corner, which means turkey and pumpkin pie and pumpkin spice, like everything now. And not only that, I, I love, God, I think, shows off during the fall, his creativity. As you, I, one of my favorite things to do is go to Bernheim during the fall and go out on the, the treetop walk and just look over the valley at all the brilliant colors. I don't even mind blowing the 20 trillion leaves that fall into my, my yard, especially, this makes it kind of fun, actually. But, uh, and if you want me to come over to your house, I might, I might just take you up on that. And usually when I'm, when I'm blowing the, the leaves, my, my kids get involved, especially my boys, and they don't always uh, help the process go faster because it's usually my job is to gather the leaves into a pile, and their job is usually to jump into the leaves. And so my, my job is to gather them. Their job is to, to scatter them, which I think is a pretty good picture of what the church ought to be like. If you think about it, we uh, come together and we love to gather as a, as a church family to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to care for one another, but that's not enough, is it? Because we are called also to scatter. In today's passage, Jesus is going to be talking about and really teaching his disciples and empowering them to go and to scatter. And so let's pray and then we'll dive into this passage. Father, we desperately need your grace, and your power to infiltrate our hearts, to empower us to, to be a church that doesn't just gather and enjoy worship, but scatters to proclaim your kingdom. And so I plead with you now as we take a look at this passage that you would teach us how to do that better, that you would motivate us not just to come and to see and to come and to sit and to come and to listen, but to go and tell and show why the good news is such good news. That we might glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's take a look at chapter 9 of Luke. If you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 960. Chapter 9 of Luke. And let me give you some context of what's going on here. Really, all of chapter 8 has been leading up to what we're going to be talking about today. If you remember back, and you can look back at the first verse of chapter 8, Jesus went on through the cities and the villages doing what? Proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And so the king has arrived, and so he's bringing a message of, a, of the kingdom, and he goes and you see the authority of the king throughout chapter 8. That's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Jesus has the authority over the, the natural world as he calms the storm. He has the authority over the supernatural, casting out demons. He has authority over disease and even 
death itself. And so we've seen that over and over in chapter 8. And so we come to chapter 9, and what Jesus is about to do is to transfer that authority to his disciples and scatter them so that they can do the same things that he's been doing. And so we pick up in verse 1, chapter 9. And so he calls the 12 together. He gathers them and gave them the power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so he gathers the 12 together so that he can scatter them. He gives them power and authority. And that, and that word in the Greek for power is dynamis, which we get our word dynamite from. This is a, a, a power that's explosive. It's the power to be able to cast out demons. It's the power to be able to heal disease. But that's actually not, if you look closely at the text, that's not their primary mission. What's their primary mission here? It's not to cure diseases and cast out demons. The primary mission was to proclaim the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God more than anything else. In fact, there's not even a close second. In fact, he speaks about it so much that often as we're reading the Bible, we don't pay attention to it anymore. We just kind of glance over this kingdom language because it's everywhere, and we don't really think about the significance of it. And so I want to take a moment to really talk through that. Okay, what is the kingdom of God that he is talking about proclaiming here? First of all, the kingdom of God is not a geographical location. Often when we think of a kingdom, that's what we think of, don't we? We think of the Roman Empire, the Roman Kingdom, or the, the United King Kingdom, the UK. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Also, the kingdom of God is not a people. Often we think of the, the church as the kingdom of God, that we're the kingdom. Now, we're part of the kingdom. We're, we're citizens of the kingdom. We're, we're, we're produced by the, the king. We're, we're given that right, but we, we reflect the kingdom. We are not the kingdom. Jesus did not tell his disciples to go into the countryside and tell them the good news that the kingdom of Ra has arrived. It's us, because it's ultimately not about us. It's about him. Now, Psalm 103 Verse 19 gives a real simple definition of what the kingdom of God is. David writes, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And so if you take a note, the simple definition of the kingdom of God is this. It's God's rule and God's reign. Okay, The, the kingdom of God is simply that. God's rule and his reign. And so imagine a world where there is no resistance against God. And so when Jesus came, he's bringing his kingdom. He's, he's starting to, we're starting to see his kingdom infiltrate this world. Isaiah actually prophesied about the coming reign of God as being good news, which is a, an important word uh, for us in the New Testament, especially Isaiah 52, starting in verse 7. Isaiah prophesies how beautiful Upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so that's the good news, that your God is coming to reign. And so it makes sense that when Luke summarizes the first five verses of, uh, of chapter 9, look down at verse 6, he says, 
the disciples, they departed and they went through the villages, just like Jesus told them to, preaching what? The gospel, which means what? Good news. Gospel literally means good news and healing everywhere. And so remember back in chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went through the cities and the villages proclaiming and bringing what? The good news of the kingdom of God. And so the gospel is the news that the kingdom of God, that God's reign is here. And so along with that reign, we look back in Isaiah 52. What, what does that mean? What does God's reign mean for us? Why is that such good news? Well, it means that his salvation has come, that forgiveness of sin is available, that he has broken the power of sin, that rec- there's reconciliation between us and God, redemption. In other words, he is undoing all of the consequences of the fall of our sin. And so you've seen in chapter 8 that he's playing that out, healing of disease, casting out of demons, raising the dead, calming the storm, creating peace. He's reversing the fall is what he's doing. That's God's kingdom. That's why it's such good news. And so the gospel is the good news that the King Jesus has come. And, he, and this is what's happening for us. He's giving us the ability to trade what kingdom we're in. Okay, that's what salvation is really all about. Think back to Adam and Eve in the garden. When they were created, when the first humans were created, they were given authority and power by God to be governors or viceroys. They were given the authority and they were called out to, to subdue the earth and to rule the earth. But for Adam and Eve, that wasn't enough, was it? They didn't want to just be a governor. They, wanted, they didn't want to follow God as king. They wanted to be their own king. And so when they were tempted by Satan, it wasn't just a matter of, ooh, I made a mistake or I, made, I was being a little bit disobedient. They were committing treason against the king. And the penalty for treason is always death. And so that's what was going on. And so we've followed in their, their footsteps and, and we've rebelled just like they. And that, that rebellion we call sin. And so salvation is a transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. And so when you submit to the king by repenting of your sins and, and trusting fully in, in him, asking forgiveness, what does he do? He offers amnesty. And he pays, for your, he pays the penalty for your treason. That's what the cross is really all about. It's him paying the penalty for you rebelling against the king and, 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 and your treason. And so this is good news, right? I mean, I, I don't know if we think about the salvation in kingdom terms very often, but that's, that's a good explanation of what salvation is. It, it's that we've rebelled against the king and we deserve death, and he has offered in his love to pay the penalty that we deserve. And that's what he does on the cross. He traded in his throne for the cross so that we could spend eternity in his kingdom. And as I thought about this, this passage this week, and I really prayed about what's going on and how does this impact us as a, as a church, it, it dawned on me, and I was reminded that really our primary mission is not to just simply plant a church. Okay, Mercy Hill is not the ultimate goal with us. We're called to something much bigger. We're called to not just plant a church, but to 
be a part of God building his kingdom. And so if our vision is just simply to, is this, is to plant a church, our vision is way too small. This is not about our kingdom. Often churches get so involved and invested in building their own brand and their own kingdom, they forget, forget the mission that we're called to. It, it's not to create our own kingdom, it's to build God's kingdom, to be a part of him building his own kingdom. So let's not be a church that invests everything we've got into our own brand, into uh, what, what we're doing here. I mean, when, people, when a guest walks through those doors, I want them to leave not by saying, gosh, they were a really good church, they're a really nice church. I want them to be able to leave and say, man, that was amazing Savior. I've never seen people worship a Savior that awesome before. I never realized who Jesus truly was. That's what we should be about, not our kingdom, but God's kingdom. And that plays out in all sorts of ways. It means that we ought to be thinking forward about, okay, this is, it's not about planting a church. The church is just a tool. We ought to be about planting multitudes of churches to continue to, to see God's kingdom grow. He's called us to proclaim his kingdom. Well, next, what Jesus does in this text is he gives us really valuable principles to be able to proclaim the kingdom. Look down at verse 3. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. All right, so there's five principles that I want to pull out. I think there's a lot more, but I w- because of time, we're going to focus on these five. Principle number one that I see here is we're learning how to better proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Number one is be dependent. If you're taking notes, number one principle, be, to be dependent. He says, take nothing for your journey. Don't take your staff, no bag, no food, no money, no extra clothes. Jesus wanted them to fully depend on the provisions of God. Now, I don't think this is telling us that, okay, if you go on a mission trip, you're not supposed to pack a bag or bring any money with you, okay? I don't think this is a prescription on how to go on a mission trip, there's, but there's a principle. Um, there's a principle, there, and, and I would say that if you do lose your luggage like I have on a mission trip, God's going to provide for you, okay? And that happened. I, I lost my luggage uh, going to Scotland one time, and, and I didn't get it back until like the last day, but you know what? The airplane or the airliners, they they uh, end up paying for a whole new wardrobe for me. So I ended up ahead of the game. Okay, so God provides, and he will provide for you. Je- Jesus doesn't always require his disciples to do this, okay? Okay, this is not a prescription. And in fact, later on in Luke 22, he tells them, look, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Of course, they said nothing. But then he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And so Jesus is not giving us a prescription here, but he's giving us a very valuable principle that we need to depend fully on him. We were talking about this earlier and how hard that is. And, and Perry asked, uh, asked us if, like, where do we struggle, like, really depending on God fully? And I thought about it for a second. It didn't take me long to come up with an answer because I realized real quickly that pretty much if I think, if there's even a hint that I can control the situation, I try to control the situation. And I try not to depend on anybody else, even God. It's only when 
I put myself in positions where I know that I can't do it on my own, that I really truly depend on God. When you're when the team went to Scotland just a, a couple months ago, I mean, you guys had to, you didn't have the funding to be able to go. You had to trust God that he would be able to provide for that. And did he? Absolutely. More, more than you needed, even. Someone once challenged me to, to attempt things for God's glory that if God's not in it, they're bound to fail. They're bound to fail. Those kind of, that kind of advice is what, starts church, churches and, and uh, caused us to do things like adopt. Um, God will, will blow your mind away when you put yourself in a position that forces you to depend on him. Have you ever done that? Have you ever put yourself in a position where there was no chance that, of success unless God was part of it? Uh, George Mueller, one of my, he, I think he's my new favorite like famous Christian dude, okay? If you don't know who George Mueller is, you need to look up a biography on George Mueller. Uh, he lived in the mid-1800s, and he's most famous for the orphanages. Uh, he had five huge orphanages, and over his lifetime, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. And that's not what's most remarkable about this guy. He, in fact, his primary motivation for caring for all of these orphans was not meeting their physical needs. And what's interesting, it wasn't even meeting their spiritual needs. Listen to what he says. He said, the, the three chief reasons for establishing these orphan houses are, number one, this is his first priority, that God may be glorified should he be pleased to furnish me with the means in its being seen that it is not a vain thing to trust in him. And that thus the faith of his children may be strengthened. I'm going to talk about and break that down here in a minute. But that was his number one purpose. His number two purpose was the spiritual welfare. And the number three purpose was their temporal welfare or their physical needs. And so his primary goal was this. To strengthen the faith of believers by trusting fully and depending fully on God to provide everything that was needed. Throughout his life with all of these all these orphanages, he never once asked directly for money from anybody. Not once. He just prayed, and through faith, God continued to provide for him. And so his number one priority was to show the glory of God and the faithfulness of God by trusting fully and depending on fully on him, uh, on the promises of God. He, he trusted that God had, had promised that Look, you are going to take care of, of this ministry, and you're going to do above and beyond anything I could ever imagine. And that's exactly what he did in, in his life. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't imagine that he envisioned 10,000 orphans being cared for when he first started this. And God goes above and beyond when we put our faith fully. And his, his, his utter dependence on God inspired missionaries like Hudson Taylor and, and Jesus is teaching his disciples here, look, have an utter dependence on me. Ultimately, it's God's kingdom. It's not ours. He's going to build the kingdom. And so after each one of these principles, I, I want to ask you a, just a personal question for you to reflect on this. I want to I ask you this. What can I do? Ask yourself this question. What can I do that will only succeed if God intercedes? What is God calling me to do that will only succeed 
if God intercedes? Are you willing to put yourself in that position? To go out with nothing except for God and his provision. All right, principle number two. Be urgent. Again, go, don't even take time to pack. He says, just go. Hell is real. Tell them the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. Today, two-thirds of our world does not claim to know Jesus Christ. And over three billion people in our world do not even have access or have very little access to the gospel. In our county alone, in Bullock County, only about 10% of the people in our county right now on, a Sunday, on any given Sunday morning are actually attending a worship gathering. And probably many of those people have been attending for a long time and maybe don't even know Christ themselves. I mean, those kind of statistics should, should stop us. I mean, let's not waste our lives doing trivial things. There's a mission that we've been given. Uh, in 2007, the Washington Post did a, a pretty interesting experiment. They, they took this world-class violinist, uh, Joshua Bell, and he, they put him in Washington, D.C., in the, the metro, and he began to play. And thousands of people passed by, ignoring him. There was only seven people that stopped to listen to this, uh, this virtuoso, and he was playing this 300-year-old violin that was probably worth millions of dollars. But they didn't have the ears to hear or the eyes to recognize the greatness that was in their midst. And I think that's a lot of the church today. When we don't take the opportunity to be a part of the mission that we've been called to and the glory that, that is available to that, that's what we're missing out on. We're missing out on God's being able to be a part of God building His kingdom, His reign, that salvation comes through. I mean, when you get to see somebody go from death to life, there isn't a greater joy than that, than watching their, their eternal destination change before your eyes. I mean, what greater joy is there in life? And we have the opportunity. We have an opportunity to be a part of building God's glorious kingdom. Don't miss out on it. So ask yourself this question. Who am I praying for and intentionally seeking to introduce the good news of the kingdom? We talked about our network evangelism or relational evangelism, and I challenge you to come up with like five people in the five different areas of your life. Have you been doing that? Have you been praying for them or seeking out ways to invite them or invest in them to share the kingdom, the good news with them? Recently, I was listening to a pastor, and he challenged his, his uh, congregation by asking them to think back over the past week. Uh, what have you prayed for over the past week? And then he asked, okay, what if, hypothetically, God said yes to every one of those prayers? And God said yes to every one of the prayers over the past week. If you're a prayer warrior, for some of you, that probably means like there would be world peace, there would be no more hunger, there, everybody would be saved, I mean, the world would be totally transformed. There would be no more drug addiction. Your, your family would, would be reunited. I mean, it would be amazing. But if we're honest, for many of us, our food would be really blessed. 
we'd have really good traveling mercies. Our kids would be really healthy. What are your prayers like? Your prayers and your conversations reflect how urgent you see the mission. All right, principle number three, be redemptive. Jesus doesn't send his disciples just to talk about the kingdom. He says, go and proclaim the kingdom and heal. Now, I don't believe Jesus is trying to say that he is giving all of us the authority and the power to heal and to cast out demons anytime we want. Okay, even later on, the disciples are not always able to cast out demons and heal. And so this is for this specific mission that he's giving them this authority. But I think the principle is important, that we ought not just talk about the kingdom, we need to show the redemptive work of the kingdom. Remember, again, God's rule includes us, God reversing the consequences of the fall. And so God reveals his kingdom, yes, primarily through words, through the preaching of the gospel, but also through deeds. When you show compassion to those who are hurting, when you pursue social justice, when you go and you volunteer at the Pregnancy Resource Center and show hope to families that are in crisis, when you go and and volunteer at Sunrise and help the fatherless, when you you go and, and work at the Good News Club at Pleasant Grove Elementary, school and open up the Bible for these kids who many of them have never even heard about who Jesus is. All of those are ways that we show redemption and the power of the kingdom. And so my question to you to reflect on is this, what redemptive work am I doing to show, not just tell, but show God's kingdom to others? So be redemptive. Principle number four, pray for and expect explosive power. Pray for and expect explosive power. No, we are not going charismatic here, but I tell you what, the the charismatics, the the Pentecostals, there is something I think we ought to learn from them because they do have an expectancy that we often lack, that God is going to do something, and he's going to do something amazing. They've got that. Now, the problem what they do is that they, they, just like us, they want to trust in the promises of God, but what they do is they, they read the Bible and they come up with their own promises. Okay, and that's where they fall short. And they see in the, in the, in the word that, okay, uh, God promises health and wealth and prosperity, which is not. We see pretty much the exact opposite in there often for his disciples. But God has promised to grow his kingdom through his church. And so we, ought, as a church, ought to expect explosive power. In fact, I would, I would suggest that, that, again, he's not promising that we're going to be able to go and perform all these miracles all the time. I think the power is greater than that, okay? Because Jesus performed lots of miracles and still people did not believe. And so the power that he's talking about, the power that we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says, look, you're going to receive power. It's the same word, dynamis. When the Holy Spirit has come on you and you'll be my witnesses, that type of power, it means something more than just performing miracles. It's a power that I I think it involves three things, conviction, courage, and conversions. Conviction, courage, and conversions. When the Holy Spirit falls on you in power, 
to be able to witness to Christ, it comes with a deep conviction. You believe without a doubt that the good news is actually good news. Paul said it this way in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The explosive power that we need to be able to proclaim the gospel effectively is a conviction that what is in here is actually true and that it, is, it, it just burns in our heart. We can't, we can't contain it. This kind of power gave missionaries, has given missionaries over the years the power to be able to sing praises as they're being burnt at the stake. That's the type of courage that it gives us. It gets us outside of our, our comfort zone. A boldness to be able to proclaim the gospel. Paul said it this way to Timothy. He says, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of a, a, sp- a spirit of power and love and self-control. And finally, this power Jesus promises gives us, it produces conversion. Not all the time, but it ought to more often than when that power is not there. Because conversion is a work of God. It's a, evangelism is, is supernatural. And so we need to be praying and expecting this dynamite, this explosive power. Ask yourself, do I pray for God-sized prayers? Do I pray for God-sized prayers? All right, fifth principle. Be resilient. He said in verse 4, And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so Jesus doesn't say that sharing the good news is always going to be easy or always going to be, be fun. Rejection is a natural part of sharing the good news because not everybody accepts the good news because the good news also involves change in their life. And so shaking off the dust off your feet is very similar to us saying, I'm, I'm going to wash my hands of it. It, me- it means, look, I have done everything I possibly can in this situation. I am, I'm no longer responsible for what happens. Jesus is saying, look, if they don't respond favorably, favorably to the gospel, don't take it personally. Shake it off and move on. Be like a duck. Let the water just kind of roll off. The, the, recently, actually, I think this age-old principle of resilience has come back around, and it, it, there's a new term for it. They call it grit. Maybe you've heard that term recently. Uh, psychologist Angela Lee Duckworth has been studying this idea of grit for years, and she devi- defines grit as this. She says it's the ability to persevere in pursuing a future goal over a long period of time and not giving up. Grit is it's stamina. It, it's working really hard for a long time, no matter what it takes on a goal. It's, it's recognizing that life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And according to Duck, Duckworth, in all of her research, she, she says, and she's written a book about this, that the best predictor for success in your kids is not their IQ test, it's not their EQ test, it's not their ACT score, it's not their SAT score. It's this, it's, it's their, how much grit do they have? And of course, this is not a new finding. The Bible has given us this answer for years. Now, the Bible doesn't use the language of grit. It uses words like steadfastness, endurance. And there's plenty, plenty of gritty examples in the Bible, right? I mean, think about Noah building a huge ark 
over decades waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. Uh, or Abraham and his, his wife living like strangers in the land, waiting for the promise, waiting a quarter century into old age until God fulfilled the promise he gave to them. Jacob, I mean, serving his uncle Laban, who was very devious for many years until God fulfilled the promise he had given him. Joseph in prison for a long time, waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. Moses leading a very stubborn group of Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years, waiting for God's promise. And the grittiest of them all, I mean, Jesus, who we can't even imagine the, the sorrows that he experienced, the point where he's sweating blood. I can't imagine how much grit it took for him to say, not my will, God, but your will be done, as he faced the horror of his father's wrath. But here, biblical grit, it's different from the grit that the world talks about in one very, very important way. Biblical grit, biblical, this steadfastness, this endurance, at its core, there's a faith that rests in the promises of God that the world doesn't have. If you're a believer, you've got the capacity for more grit than anybody because you have the promises of God that you can fall on, that you can rest in. Paul said it this way. He said, I I worked harder than anybody, than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. And so I I would challenge you to ask yourself this question. Think about your trials. Are you like James, counting my trials as pure joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? endurance, steadfastness. I know the trials that I've experienced this week, the trials that I've experienced in my life, and I don't usually notice this as I'm going through the trial, but as I look back on the trials, they always are used by God to make me a better pastor, to make me, to give me a greater capacity to be able to share the the gospel and to proclaim his kingdom. And so, do you count your trials as joy, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing steadfastness? All right, let's look at the, uh, the last few verses, uh, verses 7 through 9. And what you're going to see here is really just the result of the disciples proclaiming the kingdom. Verse 7, now Herod, the tetrarch, which is a kind of a Roman governor, he was over Judea. And so he was like a, a mini-king. Sometimes they would call him King Herod, but he was really a governor. He heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, John the Baptist, or by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So he's, he's hearing all these things about Jesus. And Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this? about whom I hear such things. And he sought to see him. And eventually he would, and really his motivation is probably he wants to see a cool miracle or, or he, maybe he sees Jesus as a threat. But here's the reality. As a church, if we gather together to be encouraged, but then we go and we scatter proclaiming the kingdom and we do it dependent, fully on God, urgent, 
redemptive. We show the kingdom, not just talk about the kingdom. And we do it expecting God to move in powerful ways. And, and we've got that gospel grit. We're going to see a response. The world is going to notice that, and they're going to start asking the same question that Herod asked, who is this Jesus? I want to see him. I want to know him. And so let's be that church. Let's be that church that, that recognizes that we've been called to do more than just come and listen to a sermon and, and worship together and care for one another. We've been called to something greater. We've been called to spread the good news, to scatter and to share that God's king kingdom is is here and you you can and it's an invitation to others to go from the kingdom of gar- darkness to the kingdom of of light to the kingdom of god their their sins can be forgiven man that is good news that we ought to go and so let's pray that god would give us not just the motivation but he would empower us to be effective in doing that let's pray father once again we recognize that this is an impossible mission apart from you. And we fall short often. Often we are very much more about building our own kingdom than yours. I pray that you would convict us of that and that you would empower us to be able to proclaim your kingdom, that you would produce in us such a great joy and a love for you that we couldn't help but to talk about what you've done in our lives, that you've forgiven our sins, and that you offer that same forgiveness to a broken world. For your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.